Greetings and welcome to The House Podcast. My name is Michael and I'm so glad that you're here listening with us. The House Podcast shares the message each week from our local gathering in Central Ohio, which is a gathering of those practicing or interested in practicing the way of Jesus together in our city. In addition to the message given each week by the speaker, we also occasionally will share bonus content, such as interviews with speakers, more in-depth discussion around certain topics, and practical exercises that can help you grow as an apprentice of Jesus. The House Podcast is part of the VIA Podcast Network, which is a larger network of podcasts, all designed to help you and your community live out the way of Jesus in your context. For more information about The House or VIA, you can find us at theviacollective.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at thehouse.gathering. If you would like to contribute to The House financially, you can also do that at theviacollective.com. We're so glad you're here with us today, and may you be blessed by this week's message. All right, we're going to go ahead and dive in. It's really good to be with you all. Welcome to the house. My name's Michael, if I don't know you. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time, welcome. Um, last week, we started to talk a little bit about kind of the weeks leading up to Jesus's death. Um, and tonight, we're going to continue that with Palm Sunday. So Dan's already prayed, so I'm not going to do that again, but we're just going to dive right into our text. But before we do that, I do want to give just a little bit of review because I know last week was a long time ago and not everybody heard the message. Um, So last week we talked about the story of Lazarus, which is a super interesting story. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, and Lazarus lived in a little town called Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Lazarus lived with his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they were kind of friends of Jesus. And whenever Jesus would wander through Jerusalem, he would usually stay at their house. Um, They were pretty wealthy and were kind of supporters of Jesus's ministry. And last week, we sort of talked about how leading up to the end of Jesus's life, Jesus started to act and kind of unexpected ways, um, and ways that his disciples weren't comfortable with. Um, in John's gospel especially, people kind, John kind of writes all these weird things that Jesus started to say and do, and it really started to mess with people's expectations of Jesus. And so in last week's story, Jesus gets a message, and Jesus is about two miles away, and it's Lazarus, your friend who you love, is really sick. Can you come? And most of us, when we hear that kind of message, would think, yeah, I would go. But Jesus intentionally delays two days. And we know he intentionally delays because he says it. He says, I'm going to intentionally delay so Lazarus can go to sleep. And his disciples thought, maybe he means the kind of sleep that makes you get better from being sick. And then John writes, no, he meant death. Jesus waits for Lazarus to die. And then this weird thing happens. He comes and he gets accused by these two women who have supported his ministry a long time. Both of them say the exact same thing. If you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. Which is kind of a heavy accusation. If you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't be dead. And then this this kind of weird thing happens. Jesus sees them, sees their grief, 
and he just starts to weep. It's the shortest verse in your Bible. It's just two words. It's the first verse I memorized in Awana. Jesus wept. He wept. And what's even crazier is John is makes sure to tell us Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had it already in his mind. This is what I'm going to do. But he takes the time to weep. He's with them in the in-between. And so tonight we're going to pick up the story just about two weeks after this takes place. Um, all that happens after is Jesus stays with them a couple days. They take a few road trips out into the desert, the wilderness, and then he comes back. But he pretty much stays in Bethany because the Passover is coming and he wants to come into Jerusalem for the Passover. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. But before I do that, I want to tell a story of my own because it kind of frames tonight. Um, back when I was in college, I was a part of a Christian ministry, and one of the things that came out of that where I, I developed friends that we'd have lots of conversations about God. And we would, you know, debate the typical things like Calvinism or Arminianism and theological points and what do you believe about the Holy Spirit and things like that. We'd have lots of conversations late at night about God. And it's actually one of the things I enjoyed the most about my time in college was just having these conversations. And I remember really, really specifically one night walking outside with these friends, and we were having a conversation, and one of my friends kind of asked the group, if you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? One thing about the world, what would you change? And it, was a, it was a great question. And immediately there was like the beauty pageant answers of world peace and a lack of violence and things like that, which are all really good answers. But the, the problem was like if you say world peace, you like leave out world hunger and all these other things. And then, of course, if you say no violence, we're very nuanced in the ways that we're violent. You have to kind of say no abuse. And, and it was this kind of question, really, that boiled down to, what do you wish God would do? What do you wish God would do? And the reason I bring up that is not because I just want to reminisce about my college days, but because I think that question is actually at the heart of the story we're going to tell tonight, which is the story of Palm Sunday. I think at the heart, it's this question, what do you expect God to do? What are your expectations of God? And so we're going to dive right in to right after Lazarus is raised from the dead, a couple weeks later, the chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is kind of the council of Israel. It's a little bit of a puppet government because they're under Rome and under Pilate, but they still have their own structure. And if you were in church this morning at Spring Hills, you probably heard Pastor Tom talk about the three main political parties were the Herodians that followed King Herod, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. And so they call a meeting because there's so much kind of gossip about Lazarus raising from the dead because Lazarus was a wealthy, significant person. And so they have this meeting, and they say, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And this is not hyperbole. This had actually happened before. The Romans had come before, about 90 years earlier, under Pompey, and had taken their temple and their nation. So this is kind of the fear of the moment for these Pharisees is that in this moment, 
Jesus is causing enough of an uproar that we are going to lose our temple. We're going to lose our power and our influence. And then Jesus starts to draw near to the city. So it's the time of Passover. Jesus begins to draw near. And I'm going to jump to Luke's gospel because Luke actually records a little detail that John doesn't. But then we're going to spend the rest of our time back in John, which is where the story of Lazarus is. So when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Which is a super interesting phrase. You didn't know the time, or some translations say, the hour of your visitation. Would that you know the things that made for peace. And so we step into this moment called Palm Sunday. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. He begins to walk in to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it's no mistake that it's happening at the Passover. The Passover commemorated when God passed through Israel and freed them from the empire. In that time, it was Egypt. And so Jesus is going to pass through Jerusalem and they want him to do what God did when they were enslaved in Egypt. They want plagues. They want a strong Jesus to set them free. And so it's in this loaded moment that Palm Sunday happens. And so they come out to meet him and they're saying, Hosanna. There's a great crowd. They come out of the festival. They heard that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. They take palm branches. They go out to meet him. And they shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're quoting Psalm 118. And they're saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he. And so you have this, this weird picture. In the front of the procession, which we're going to get to in a minute, is the people that saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus himself. So imagine a parade, and at the front of the parade is a guy who was just dead for four days. He's at the front of the parade. That's a pretty good start to your parade. And then there's all the people that are like, yeah, I was there, it happened. And then there's the disciples and the crowds coming, running. And then there's Jesus Fresh off of weeping, oh, that this city, that this people would know what would bring them peace. If only they wouldn't miss their hour of visitation. And yet we're going to see that the people do miss their hour of visitation. His tears are prophetic because what he says will happen if they miss the hour actually happens. The city is surrounded within 35 years of Jesus saying this. Luke's gospel says not one stone will be left on another. That literally happens. They get barricaded. The Roman emperor gets so frustrated that he commands not one stone be left on another stone in Jerusalem. 
what they were afraid of, the Romans coming and taking their temple, it happens. They miss the hour of visitation. But that hasn't happened yet. They're in this moment saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. And I think they were a lot like us. When they said this, they wanted Jesus to save them from the problems in their life. They were occupied by Rome. They wanted to be free. They were poor. They wanted to have enough. They were hungry. They wanted food. They wanted livelihoods. When they said, save us, we pray, they were asking for all the things we were asking for. And by the way, that's when most of us come to God. We come to God when we need God to intervene, when we feel like we're powerless in our scenarios and our situations. But the problem in this moment is that what they were asking God to save them from wasn't actually the problem. See, when we come to God and we are asking for God's salvation, save us, we pray, what are we asking for? What do we want or expect God to do? I think if we were honest, most of us want God to fix the problems in our life. But Jesus wasn't coming into Jerusalem to fix the circumstances of their life. Jesus knew that wasn't really the problem. And by the way, there's a lot of people that expect God to fix the circumstances in our life. In fact, there's a lot of people who don't even believe in God who say that if there's a God, they have a pretty good idea what his job description should be. He should take care of violence. If there's a God, he should take care of hunger. If there's a God, he should take care of all of our problems, homelessness, abuse. If God is powerful and if he's able he should act in our world, and he should fix it. If there's a God, that's what he should do. And as people of God, that's what they should do. If you ask an atheist, what should the church do? They should work for peace. They should work to make the world a better place. That's the thing religion is for. But you kind of, you cross this line. It's not politically correct anymore when we talk about being saved ourselves when we talk about needing to be saved. And we don't often see the connection. Erwin McManus has a quote where he says, the dilemmas in the world are an extension of the human soul. And I love that. Because so often we look at the problems in the world and we separate ourselves from the problem. We don't want to own that we are the problem. We don't want to own that the world looks the way it looks, that the relationships that in our life are broken, they are the way they are because of who we are. The Jews didn't want to admit that they were the problem. They just wanted God to come in and fix the problem. I remember a time in my life where I was about 16 years old, and I, I really wanted to make the world a better place, but I was just in bondage. I wasn't yet a follower of Jesus, but I had been to Africa. I'd had a pen pal. I had seen a lot of suffering in the world, and I was fresh off a summer trip to India. And I remember just being in one of the poorest sections of India and in a train which is packed full of people when we got off, and you literally had to step over crippled people just to get to our taxi 
And I remember thinking, I just want to make the world a better place. I just want to make the world a better place. But then I just felt so guilty because I wanted to make the world a better place, but I was an addiction. I was broken. I was not following God in any way, shape, or form that was meaningful. I couldn't make my soul a better place, but I wanted to make the world a better place. I felt so powerless. And in these moments, when we say Hosanna, the question is really, what are we asking God to save us from? Is it just the mess we've created, or is it the self that keeps, that keeps making the mess that we don't like? Is it just the broken relationships, or is it what is inside of us that keeps breaking relationships? Is it peace out there, or is it what's inside of us that continually brings violence into the world? Because one thing I know, I know if God did act like we want him to, I know if he ended all the worlds in the world tonight and he didn't change us, we would be at war tomorrow. If he ended all poverty in the world and he didn't change our hearts, we would have rich and poor by the end of the week. See, the human dilemma that we are not separated from is that we are what's broken. We are the problem. They wanted Jesus to free them from Rome, but they didn't want to acknowledge that they were slaves in a much deeper way, that they needed a much deeper freedom. And so when they shouted Hosanna, they shouted save us, they had a very particular thing, an image in mind of what they thought God ought to do if he were good. They were testing Jesus. They wanted him to become king. And just like Justin Maccabee and his rebellion where the palm branches were first waved, just like in his rebellion, he was the hammer. They called him Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be the hammer. They wanted Jesus to step into this moment and to hammer their enemies. They wanted him to be victorious. But the problem was they didn't know the problem. The problem was they didn't know what was really wrong. The problem was they didn't know what would actually lead to peace. And because they didn't know what they really needed, they missed God passing through. They missed their hour of visitation because they thought God must look like a hammer. God must look like this. They had no picture in their mind that Jesus was going to a cross. It didn't enter their wild fantasy that Jesus was going to humble himself unto death. They had no idea that that's what they needed. They wanted saved from Rome, and Jesus was going to save them from their sins, and not just them, but the entire world. And so then we have a little bit more description to this scene, which is Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it. As it's written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And I know that Jesus had to ride a donkey because that's how it was written, but it was written poorly, right? It shouldn't have been a donkey. That's not very inspiring. And not just any donkey, it's a colt, which had imagery in that time of, wow, this, this is a set-aside animal. But when you really think of it, a rabbi, a religious teacher, Coming in on a young donkey is not that inspiring. 
In fact, you know it's not that inspiring because these are John's next words. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. They had no idea. It wasn't like they were thinking, donkey, wow, victory. They were thinking, donkey must have been the best he could afford. I wish we had a stallion. Wouldn't that be a better story if Jesus came in on a stallion? Maybe a white stallion? You can imagine him kind of coming in. Instead of coming in in the morning, maybe come in at sunset, get the silhouette action going. Jesus with his washboard abs, he could have a sword, maybe a bow. That would be intimidating. That would be a kind of king that they were expecting. That would be Jesus the hammer, right? That's how Justin Maccabee would have done it. He would have been the hammer. But instead, he comes in on a donkey. He comes in on a colt. And by the way, they did not understand this, but this was a good thing. The truth is, you don't need God with a hammer. You desperately need God on a donkey. You need God humbled. The holiness, the righteousness of God is terrifying. Jesus was humbling himself and coming to them in a way that they could understand. He was coming in a way that they could approach him and not be afraid. When we have guests over to our house, a lot of times what that practically means for me is to block out at least an hour to help my wife clean our house. Because without cleaning our house, nobody's welcome in our house. Because there's this, this fear that if they just came, they would see how we actually live, which is horrifying. And so we have this, this kind of unspoken thing. And I knew it before I got married, so it wasn't like I was unaware. But I know when people come over, we need at least an hour's notice, and we're going to clean for an hour, and things are going to look good. And we, we like to present ourselves in a certain way. But Jesus humbled. Jesus on a donkey is like God showing up in the messiest room of your house. And he knows it's that bad. And he's there to clean up the rooms you don't even want cleaned up. And he's there to heal what you aren't even aware is broken. And so in this moment, Jesus comes in on a donkey. And then I love, I love John. He records kind of the next lines. The crowd was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and they raised him from the dead. They continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he performed the sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I love the Pharisees, and this is such a great line. See, this is getting us nowhere. They're frustrated. They're frustrated. They say the whole world has gone out after him. That's just factually not true. It's not even close to true. There's at most probably 500 people. There's like Mary and Martha and Mary and Martha and the other Martha. And there's Peter and Thaddeus and Judas. Like, like they can be named almost. It's not the whole world. And it's a backwater little armpit of the Roman Empire. Not even close to the whole world. But this, this is their fear and they're frustrated. This is getting us nowhere. And I don't think, I think when they said this, they had no idea how prophetic it is. That this opposition to Jesus, it gets you nowhere. It gets you nowhere. It was getting them nowhere. And one of their leaders, actually a couple months after this, after the resurrection and all, actually even told them, like, if we oppose this and it's from God, it's going to get us nowhere. 
But if it's from man, it'll just phase, phase out like all the other rebellions. But it's getting them nowhere. And then there's this fear. And I like, I like how John records it because this kind of highlights what was in their heart. See how the whole world has gone after him. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that the whole world would go after Jesus, which is kind of interesting. Like, what, what would happen? What is that fear? What would happen if the whole world went after Jesus? The humblest, the kindest, the most loving man who ever lived. A guy who healed the blind. A guy who raised the dead. Who healed the lepers. Who basically brought the outcast back into the family that forgave the adulteress and the adulterer. What would actually happen if the whole world went after Jesus? It's horrifying, isn't it? Can't you understand their fear? They're like, what would happen to our country if we were all like Jesus? And so they're, they're afraid. And I have a real simple question for you tonight. What are you afraid would happen if you went after him? What would, you, what would happen if you gave those areas of your life to him? What is, what is your fear? See, this is the fear of the Pharisees. They're afraid that the whole world would go after him. And oh, the condition of the world. It would be such a better place if this fear were true. It would be such a better place if the whole world went after him. In fact, I, I believe and I long for a day when their fear comes true, that the whole world goes after Jesus. And then it kind of turns, and this is in verse 9, but it says a large crowd of Jews came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And if you remember kind of the procession they were having, which John and Luke write very, very intentionally to kind of mimic this imperial procession that emperors would have. And at the front is Lazarus, a guy raised from the dead, which is just incredible. Can you imagine? Like you could go up and shake his hand. Hi, Lazarus. What's it like to be dead? I don't know. It's not like living. And like, what, what happened? What did you hear? I heard my name, and then I came forth. I don't know, there's probably a Calvinist joke in there somewhere. But like, Lazarus just comes from the dead. And you could talk to him. He was alive. He was shaking hands. He was the front of the parade. And these people, they're interacting with Lazarus. And there's some of us that were thinking, wow, if, if I could shake Lazarus's hand, I would believe. I would be there. I would be saying, Hosanna. And the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, we have so many testimonies and so many stories. I, I remember for myself, I remember the first time God called my name. I was 17. I was at a church camp. I was there for a girl. It's about six months after the India trip. I was there for a girl. I remember when God called my name. It was like being dead and coming alive. I don't know Lazarus's details, but I know the details of my own story. I know when Jesus said he's the resurrection and the life, it's true. It's true. But tonight, I want us to kind of settle on that question. What are we expecting from God? Because in this story, we have all this, this tension. It's Passover. They weren't delivered. And Jesus is weeping on a donkey. 
and they have these expectations for God. Save us, we pray. Save us. And the question that's left kind of lingering is, what do you want to be saved from? What do you want to be saved from? And it's kind of, it's kind of an archaic word. When I first came to faith, I really hated the word saved. It just felt so old and archaic and like, can't we come up with a better way of saying this? And like, but the truth of the matter is, is we need saved. The truth of the matter is, is the brokenness in the world is an extension of the human soul. We are the problem. And we can say Hosanna and we can throw our parades for God and we can miss his visitation if we don't let him touch what he needs to touch, what really needs saved, what's underneath the surface, what we can't fix ourselves, what is the source of all of our problems and circumstances. And yes, we need our circumstances fixed too. And praise Jesus, he does that. But here on Palm Sunday, he is not there to fix their circumstances. He's there to go to the source. He's there to go to the source. And so that kind of brings us back to that question I started with tonight. What would you change about the world? And I think there's a very, very simple answer. If I could change anything in the world, I would change the human heart. I would change the human heart because it is from us we have made this world the way it is. And God's strategy, God's plan for this world is to change it by changing our hearts one person at a time. And so they wanted him to be king and he refused to be the kind of king they wanted. But Lazarus walked before him, a visible representation that he had all power and authority, that if he wanted to be the hammer, he could have been the hammer. Lazarus, who was dead four days, walked before him, shaking hands, telling his story. And so we have a king who walked to a cross, a king who is the resurrection and the life. A dead man walked before him and led him to his death. What are you expecting from God? As we enter this Easter season, this holy or passion week as it's called, we have Good Friday this coming Friday, and then Easter Sunday, what are you asking God for? Is it possible that what you need saved from isn't the thing at the top of your mind, isn't the circumstance that you want to change, that is actually much deeper in your heart? Is it possible that God wants to come to you on a donkey and not on a stallion? Is it possible that he wants to go into those rooms in your heart that are dirtiest, and are not the areas you would think need change first. But to him matter the most. Because he knows that life flows up from the heart. And that all the other things in your life are the product of that deep, deep need we have in our soul to be saved. To be healed. 
define peace. And so the question for us on Palm Sunday is really simple. Would Jesus be weeping over us? Would he be weeping over Michael saying, if only Michael knew the things that would bring peace in his life. If only Michael would pay attention, he wouldn't miss the hour of his visitation. If only Michael would stop asking me for the hammer and he could accept me on the donkey. Would he weep over you? What would his words over you be? What are your expectations for God? Because it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference to whether or not you find him. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for coming on a donkey. Thank you for being willing on this Passion Week, being willing to be faithful to your mission. I'm sure it was tempting to you to come in on the stallion. I'm sure it was tempting to raise up an army and to rule the nations. But instead, you came on a donkey. And on Thursday of this week, as we remember you having all power and authority, wash the disciples' feet. And we just, we confess, Lord, that so often we miss you passing through. We miss Passover because you're not what we're looking for. You're not what we want. You're not what we expect. You're not how we think God should be. And I thank you that you called Lazarus' name, that you changed the world one person at a time, one heart at a time. I thank you for the people in this room who have heard you call their name. And I pray for those who have never heard you call their name, who, who don't know what it's like to go from death to life. I thank you that that is your strategy. I thank you because you are good. You've emptied yourself and become humble even unto death. And that is good. It is so much better than being the God of the hammer. Thank you for your gentleness. We just invite you, Holy Spirit, in this time to minister to us. We ask to experience the risen Christ in our midst tonight as we worship and as we think about your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.